All right. Oh, that's a little loud. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. We have a lot of good stuff, good information to get through. Um, everyone seems really happy and rejuvenated. Extra hour of sleep, Astros win, the World Series. It's just, it's wonderful. All right, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray for us, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for um, all that you do bless us with, including um, the, just the, the beautiful weather, um, waking us up this morning to, to come be with your people and learn about um, the history of, of your people and this practice and doctrine of evangelism. Pray that you would um, help us grow from our grow from our understanding of the past, the, how you've worked through your people throughout generations um, to, to bring the gospel to the nations, to, to the lost, and that we would be encouraged in our own evangelism as we are um, proclaimed the same gospel to our lost friends and family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to continue our study through the the doctrine of evangelism, and today we'll, I'm going to give a, a very brief history of evangelism, the practice of evangelism throughout church history, and I just want to initially say just a few words about the, the benefit of studying history, specifically the past history of God's people and their thinking on evangelism. Of course, there's the cliche answer that's often told in popular studies of history, which is that we must study history to not repeat the mistakes of the past. If you heard this, maybe you've heard the phrase, those who fail to learn from the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat them. And by implication, I think we can learn from and repeat where we have done right or what we have done right in history to help form our engagement with the present and I think that's largely right and a, and a very valuable reason for us to study history on any given topic. But it's not the only reason. Another big reason for studying history, specifically of a topic, is that it makes us more aware of our own presuppositions, our own um, thoughts, the, the way we think about things when we approach a topic. Meaning, I think we, we all approach the scripture and our understanding of theology and, and doctrine with, with influences that are based in our historical and, and cultural context or situation. And oftentimes we're not even aware of these presuppositions because they're just are. They're just what we believe, what we think. It's just the waters that we swim in. But if we study different historical contexts, different historical perspectives, different historical periods, we can learn that there are other ways to view a particular thing. There's different waters that Christians have swam in. So for the topic of evangelism, by studying the history of evangelism, we can see how, how throughout the church there were different understandings, different perspectives, different um, methods that the church has used in the practice of evangelism. And by thinking about them, we can identify our, our particular contextual presuppositions 
that actually may be hurting our understanding or our practice of evangelism that aren't necessarily biblical, but, but something that we've just adapted or, or adopted, adopted from the, the culture. The final reason I think it's important to, to study history, and it's probably the most in, important reason, especially for a topic like evangelism, is that we gain helpful and just very practical inspiration as we look at these models from the past. The church has a wonderful heritage of believers, believers in Jesus Christ across cultures, across generations, across denominations more recently, who, who were faithful to, to the task given to them, to, to be faithful to proclaim and teach the gospel to the lost. And so we can look back on them and gain inspiration for our own proclamation of the gospel today. Now we are obviously not going to talk about everything we could talk about this morning, um, Regarding the topic of evangelism in church history, there's a ton that could be said, so I'm just going to give a general history. So if I don't say your favorite thing, you can say it. Um, but I'm not going to get to everything. It's more of a 40,000-foot view of the history of evangelism. So let's first start with the period of the early church. The early church. So I'm talking about from around the year 180 to 500. 100 to 500. And during this time, the, the church is really still centered in the Mediterranean world. In the Mediterranean world. And one of the hallmarks of the early church that's important to note is that Christians in this era, for the most part, faced severe persecution for their faith in Christ. So the Roman emperors during this time began to realize that, that Christianity and Christians, this, this new religion, could not be easily assimilated into their empire, and therefore they, they posed Christians, that is, posed a great threat to the empire because of their unwillingness to, to submit to the emperor as lord, as full lord of their life. And so we have letters from Roman leaders to early Christians and to the public um, really with these outlandish accusations of Christians of some immoral things to discredit them. One of those would be they were charged with being cannibals because of the practice of the Lord's Supper. But the biggest threat to the Roman Empire from the early Christians was their refusal to deny Christ as Lord. Their refusal to deny Christ instead of giving allegiance to the emperor, full allegiance to the emperor. But one of the amazing things about the, the fierce persecutions of early Christians faced was that by all accounts, Christians continued to, to witness, continued to proclaim the gospel in, their, in, in public in their private lives with family and friends. And despite the persecution, and because of the faithfulness of these early Christians, Christianity spread. It spread pretty like, like wildfire. And by the year 300, an estimated 10% of the Roman Empire was considered to be practicing Christians. So it's a big um, growth in a, a pretty, from an earthly perspective, a very new religion 
um, a big growth in the Roman Empire. Now, there was different forms of evangelism that the church in this period undertook. There was a bunch of public preaching and, and common gathering places in public, even though this could lead to, to imprisonment and death. Um, it still was a common practice for the early church to engage in. We have several accounts of personal witnessing between Christians and, and their friends or, or acquaintances. And perhaps the largest method of evangelism during this time, or at least what we, we know the most of because we have the most records of it, is the, the Christian literature during this time. Many of the most famous documents and thinkers we know of from this period are, are from Christian apologists. Christian apologists who, who defended the faith through their, their written apologies or their written arguments, defenses for the Christian faith. So men like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian are some of the most famous men of this period and, and they, they defended Christianity in their literature. And in terms of evangelism, they, they did boldly declare and presented the gospel in their writings for all to see, for the public to see, for the Roman uh, delegates to see. And really, given the, the vast persecution and the, the newness of the Christian religion during this time, it really begs the question, I think, for us to ask and think on, why the early church's evangelism was so effective? Why was it so effective? And there's been many theories as to why. And no doubt there's probably several different factors that contributed to the, to the success of the gospel proclamation. But most fundamentally, I think we need to say that it was the power of God at work through the spread of his gospel. God saved his people as the gospel was proclaimed, as the gospel went forth, as the gospel spread, just like we saw in, in the book of Acts. But from an earthly perspective, the, the message did seem to carry a, a great appeal in that culture, in that cultural context. In an age when, when death was extremely rampant, um, such a, a prominent part of the culture was just death at a young age, death of young people, death was, was everywhere. So the message of the gospel that Jesus has conquered death, that Jesus had conquered death through his death and resurrection was a wonderful appeal to people in that culture. And there's account after account of Christians who, who put their, their lives where their mouths were, who, who died at the hands of the Roman Empire, were martyred, and they, they lived as if there was actually an afterlife, not fearing death, which I think no doubt it spread this fuel to the fire of the spread of the gospel. Um, Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, argues that another reason for the success of the, the early church's evangelism was that it was seen as the responsibility of every Christian to evangelize. Green writes, it was axiomatic that every Christian was called to be a witness to Christ, not only by life, but by lip. Everyone was to be an evangelist and apologist, at least to the extent of being ready to give a good account of the hope that was in them. So no doubt, an another notable reason for the spread of, of Christianity 
in Rome was just the radically different lives that Christians lived, ethically. Um, the, the, the righteous, holy character that they, they lived and served in the community was appealing to, to the watching world, especially get compared to the pagans' um, just general immorality during that time. But it wasn't all wonderful um, during this time, especially in the, the latter half of the early church period. Some corruptions arose during this time. And some of this, this is quite controversial, but I'm going to say it. Some of this centers around the, the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine in 313 AD. With his conversion to Christianity came a, a union with the, the church and the state. And this led to what is known as Christendom. Christendom where there was really no, no separation between the church and the state. And no doubt, the, the rise of Christendom led to, to many benefits and cultural benefits. Many great institutions were formed that were a great benefit, still are a great benefit to society that we are still blessed with. So it's not as if there's nothing good that came from the merging of the state and the church, but it did have negative effects. And one of the biggest negative effects is that the church's doctrine of conversion suffered, and by extension, our evangelism suffered. And this happened because Constantine made Christianity the, the, the religion of the empire and even offered rewards or incentives for citizens of the empire to convert to Christianity. And what inevitably ended up occurring, right, was false professions, the rise of what you could call nominal Christianity, of false conversion as folks were suddenly incentivized with earthly goods to, to profess faith, which always leads to, if we look back through history, that always leads to false professions, false conversion. And again, it's not to say that some good when we study history, it's complicated. It does not say that there's no good that occurred because of this um, change in the church. Immediately, the persecutions of Christians largely ended, which is a good thing. But also came, came in some corrupting influence into the churches that had a negative effect on, on the doctrine of the church. And with the rise of, of state influence and conversion, evangelism seemed to be become less prominent, less prominent ministry in the church and just um, the general Christian in those churches. Which again coincides with, with conversion becoming sort of a tool of the state rather than a tool of the church. Now this leads to the period of, of the church history known as, as the Middle Ages, which is from the year 500 to 1500, so a massive chunk. But first, any comments or questions? All right, let's go to the Middle Ages, which is the biggest period of time when I'm spending spend every church history book, spends the least amount of time on this, so I'm going to, too. Um, so the church in the Middle Ages, much like Tom just said, bearing the fruit of the, the end of the early church period was with its, with its blending of church and state and ecclesiastical authority becoming centralized, you could say institutionalized, I would argue the Middle Ages was not the best period for the history of the church because of these things. It was marked by the, the new practice of sacramentalism, 
which is the practice that the sacraments, which are the sacred religious acts, are necessary to receive saving grace, which is fundamentally that that practice distorted the, the gospel that we are to proclaim in evangelism. And this was paired with, with sacerdotalism, which is the belief that a priest must mediate, must be the one to mediate the sacraments to the people. And so both of these practices arose during this, this time period. Also, the, the established church, the institutional church, grew just like exponentially in power and in territory in political power. It was very common for the most wealthy people of the day to, to donate large tracts of land to the church. Bishops then became not just spiritual leaders, but they became the, the political leaders with the political power in the government. And so all of these changes, all of this led to the formal formation of the Roman Catholic Church. And so though there was the, the, these obvious, I think, negatives of the church history, there was some bright spots in terms of evangelism. So one name to know during this time is Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard of Clairvaux, he's a strong preacher who, who focused specifically in his preaching on the love of Christ for the lost in his preaching. John Calvin called Bernard a major witness to the truth in the Middle Ages which is no small thing coming from Calvin, who, who was kind of obsessed with the truth. So later in this period, in the 14th century, this is kind of on the, on the right before, not right before, but on the, I can't think of the phrase, right before the Reformation, um, set the foundation for the Reformation. John Wycliffe declared the, the scriptures to be the sole source of Christian doctrine. And so he published the, the first English translations of the Bible, Again, laying the, the groundwork to some of what we see in the Reformation, especially in regards to, to bringing the, the scriptures to everyone's native tongue. Which I think this is really important. I would argue, I would put that in the category of evangelistic work, of evangelism. Um, John Huss also emphasized uh, scriptural authority, and it was actually burned by the, the Roman Catholic Church and state as being charged as a heretic. Another bright spot for evangelism during this time was the, the, the rise of some missionaries, of the missionary movements in the church. So Patrick, who we celebrate St. Patrick's Day, spread the gospel through Ireland. He went there, spread the gospel. Columba brought the gospel to Iona, which is an island in Scotland. Boniface took the gospel to, to Germany and Belgium. And so there was an emphasis in this time period of taking the gospel to those who've never heard it, right, in the Middle Ages, to, to the far-off reaches of the lands, which was Ireland for that time, Belgium, and Germany. So very generally, we can say that, that about the church in the Middle Ages, that with the practice of evangelism, I think we get a, a mixed bag of sorts. The negative that we see is that church and state blended to the point that that the church no longer understood or engaged in our mission to make disciples of all nations, right? It was kind of left up to these, the clerical class, as Tom said. 
And it would also happen, to, and it was left up to the state. So this would happen through military conquest and just social pressure to convert. Also, uh, a massive negative, probably the biggest negative, is that the gospel itself became corrupted during this time. Over time, through the false teaching that was actually systematized um, in the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. But we also see, as we see as we look back through, through any point of church history, that God is building his church. Even amidst these, I would say, serious, grave errors. And there was those that were, were faithful to, to teach, to, to proclaim the gospel to the lost, and sought to, to reform the church from the inside, right? And this leads to the, the period of church history known as the Reformation. See, I told you we would get through a thousand years really quick. So we're at the Reformation. And so again, right, the, the corruption was building. It was massive in the Roman Catholic Church during this time. The, the, the papacy became secularized to a large extent as, as Pope Alexander VI used the office of Pope to, to advance his own personal wealth massively, his own family's wealth. Um, he also had a mistress who had four children. That's not good for a pope, um, not good for anyone. Um, but it was a massive scandal. It highlighted the, the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, right? This is their, their, their leader, their God-appointed leader, um, who is just living an immoral, selfish life. Johann Tetzel was especially uh, infamous for his practice of selling indulgences. Uh, folks would, would buy indulgences to, to grant remissions for, for those who were dead and who they thought, and according to their doctrine, were in a place called purgatory awaiting their eternal destination. So it's just a very, very wicked practice exploiting people um, to gain profit. It's essentially what the church had become into. And so the Reformation was largely in response to a lot of these wicked practices, but also the, the rediscovery, I would say, of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thus, I would argue, it's massively important in the history of evangelism, the Reformation is, because... The, the Reformation recovered and, and clarified the message we're to proclaim to the lost. And so there's been many articles, many books written uh, that argue that the Reformation and the Reformers actually de-emphasized evangelism, that they didn't talk about it, and they weren't evangelists. And I would just push back on all that and say, without the Reformation, we wouldn't have a proper gospel to proclaim. It, to, to evangelize people with. So it is, it is fundamental to our evangelism, I would argue. So the most common and probably the most influential group of re reformers were known as the magisterial reformers. And most notably, this included um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, some Magisterial, magisterial, magisterial reformers use the magistrate or the powers of the state to bring reform in the church, which again was just kind of the way things worked back then coming off the, the period of the Middle Ages. But one common critique of both these men is that, that they did not care about 
evangelism or missions. That's one common critique you'll, you'll hear about Luther. You'll hear about um, Calvin if you read anything about this. I read one joke about this that emphasizes this. It comes from an article called Luther and Missions by John Warwick. He writes, I don't think this is funny, but I'm just going to say it. See if you all laugh. A current joke has to do with a new Martin Luther doll. You wind it up and it just stands there. That's the joke. Playing off his statement, here I stand. But did Luther just stand there, right? It's implying that he didn't actually do it. He didn't go out with the gospel. Or did he move dynamically with a sense of mission to the lost? Or did he just stand there and just do his little nailing the theses thing? So I would argue he did a lot more than just stand there. And we can see this first and foremost, if you look at some of Luther's documents, he actually signs them as an evangelist of the Lord. So he self-consciously thought of himself as, as evangelizing, as recovering and proclaiming the true gospel in the work that he was doing. And I think one issue that, that many modern evangelical Christians have when asking if Luther was an evangelist is that what they have in mind is a particular thing. And that particular thing probably looks like Billy Graham or something, or Luis Palau. But Luther didn't do that. No one really did at this time. So it's kind of unfair to, it's just weird to even critique him in that way. But Luther proclaimed the gospel through his, his teaching, his preaching, his Bible translations, his, his hymn writing. All of it's centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also wrote a ton of, of tracts, of books, to explain his views. And with the advent of the printing press, he definitely utilized that technology to proliferate the gospel message to the surrounding nations. Worldwide, you could say, at that time. Obviously not worldwide. Worldwide in Europe. So he specifically recovered right, the all-important doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And so Luther, I would argue, is no doubt spreading the gospel message far and wide. And I would say Calvin operated in a very similar way. Now, the, the non-magisterial reformers, who are sometimes known as the radical reformers, were, I would say, more explicit in their personal witness in evangelism. They, they typically... Well, they just never relied on the magistrate to, or the state to spread the gospel and their, and their propagation of the gospel. They couldn't, right? They were actually getting persecuted by the state. So think of historical groups like the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were actually persecuted at times by the magistrate, by Protestant magistrates, um, which is interesting. Um, but they, they generally taught and believed that the Great Commission was to make disciples of all nations, right? They believed that command was given to all Christians, not just the magistrate, not just the, the state church, but it was given to every individual Christian. And thus, I think, obviously, they had a greater emphasis then on just personal evangelism, personal witnessing. I saw one story, it, it documented, now this is funny, that the, there is a woman... Uh, so women in this time, they were particularly prominent in, in sharing the gospel. And one account, the, 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 a woman was actually chained in her home, because it, this is a quote, to keep her from going to her relatives and neighbors to witness to, their, to her faith. 
this is obviously pretty radical. It's what I think they're called radical reformers, right? Uh, just a radical faithfulness to, to, to spread the gospel. Any comments, questions? All right, for time's sake, I'm just going to pass over a bunch of more years where we see the, the Puritans who, who did, this is in, in England, uh, with the Reformation of the Church in England. The Puritans made it a practice of, of sharing the gospel, teaching the gospel and everyone in their parish, everyone in their community. This is highlighted well in the ministry of someone like Richard Baxter, um, a Puritan. But really, where I think we see a, a massive change in the practice of evangelism, and mostly where we get a lot of our modern ideas and practices of evangelism come with the forefront of what is known as the Great Awakening. So the Great Awakening occurs in the 1700, 1700s under the, the influence and leadership of men such as George Whitfield which is spelled Whitefield, but pronounced Whitfield. George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. So John Wesley, he famously, he came to America, the American colonies as a missionary, and aboard that boat, he interacted with a very important group, well, a group of this group called the Moravians. And the Moravians are important because... They were a, a pre-Reformation group of Christians that were sort of the, the proto or the forerunners for, to the modern missionary movement. They emphasized mission a ton. That was actually like all they, they did. And they felt it was their call to take the gospel to the nations. And so Wesley went and he, he, he went to a Moravian prayer meeting. And after meeting some of these people on this ship, right, he went to this meeting and he felt... He, or this is what he wrote, he felt a distinct call in that meeting to go and proclaim the gospel throughout England, throughout the nation, in a new way. And it's exactly what he did. And this, as best I can tell, where we, we see the practice of open-air preaching as evangelism was popularized. Open-air preaching and going from town to town as an itinerant preacher. Wesley traveled over 250,000 miles in, on horseback proclaiming the gospel to, to all who would hear. And he wrote tons of books, tons of gospel tracts um, that, that also proclaimed the gospel message. His life could be summed up in his, his, own, model, his own, own motto for his life, which I don't know why you would have an own motto for your life, but he did. He said, the world is my parish. That's kind of what he lived by. The world is my congregation, my church, my parish. Meaning England, in particular, is who he's called to preach to. Not one particular congregation in one area like, like, like Johnson does. Maybe you go out and itinerantly preach. No. Okay. Yeah, he, he's called to preach this one congregation. Wesley, right, saw the, to, the whole nation to be his gospel proclamation ground. And he was massively influential, massively influential. Now, what is known as the, the first Great Awakening happened in 
America and the American colonies through the, the leadership and ministries of men like George Whitfield, who traveled over to the States and preached, and also men like Jonathan Edwards. So Whitfield, a, a friend of Wesley, he was a student with Wesley at Oxford in England, but Whitfield used many of the same methods of his friend Wesley, and he preached all over the American colonies and England, and by all accounts, he was amazing. I mean, an amazing preacher, a very gifted public speaker, just an, an amazingly gifted evangelist. And there's many uh, accounts of people that came to faith through um, hearing his, his gospel proclamation, his, his preaching. And he was, he, it's hard to like, put into word, like he was just massively influential. Some historians say like he's the first American celebrity. I couldn't think of a good like like Billy Graham on steroids. It's like eighty nearly eighty percent of Americans had heard him preach in person, which is just astonishing. Um, and he influenced like a class of itinerant preachers who did the same thing as him. Obviously not as popular as gifted probably, but but itinerant pre- preaching became a very normal thing in the culture at this time. And by all historical accounts, their preaching was effective. And a a massive revival took place, a spiritual revival took place, and many were were converted, or many nominal Christians who thought they were Christians were convicted of their sin through hearing the gospel proclaimed through his ministry and repented, received new life. And this leads, this is where it's really important, this leads to some not-so-great practices that we see in the Second Great Awakening. And the Second Great Awakening, which occurred in the early 19th century, so the, the, the 1800s in this country. I'll stop again. Comments, questions? Nothing? Second Great Awakening. Okay, so... Yeah, that's absolutely right. And they were self-consciously using it that way. Like, this is a means we can use to get the gospel, especially in that time when it was a corrupted gospel being taught by the Catholic Church. So it was like, we need to get this out everywhere. And that's kind of how they viewed it. Um, so it was, it was massive in, in evangelistic ministry. And there's tons of books on it, like tons of tons of literature that we can read and gain from. All right, let's go to the the Second Great Awakening. Um, so this started. It's hard to in history just put dates on things, but most historians believe it started in the 1790s in New England, and traveled west throughout great apparent outbreaks of arrival across the country. And I'm going to argue, this is a common argument, not just to me, but that the spiritual awakening and revival was much different than the first Great Awakening. So the ministry of George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. This was something, I think, very different. And Ian Murray, in his book, Revival and Revivalism, he, is, he just gives a, it's a really good book. You should think about reading that book, Revival and Revivalism, Ian Murray. But he chronicles some of the big differences between the two awakenings, the two revivals. And speaking generally, what he argues, and I think this is right, is that the first Great, great Awakening was the result of, of faithful preaching of the gospel around the United States. 
faithful gospel proclamation that God used out of, in his infinite wisdom to save people. And again, by God's grace, he blessed the preaching of his gospel and was, was kind to save, to re- have a revival of a massive number of people in the American colonies. The second Great Awakening had Christians, Christian leaders, who looked back fondly on that time, on the past generations. They saw the immorality of their day starting to spread, and they wanted to get that. They wanted to get that revival again. Um, But what they ended up doing, probably mostly, this is really importantly, probably mostly with good intentions, was actually manufacturing revival through a bunch of innovative means to get results. And it was during this time in this country that a lot of strange, what I think is strange, and peculiar practices that are still left over today in our evangelism started to occur. Practices like like, uh, altar calls and and leading non-believers through prayers of confessions, tent revivals, playing on emotions in various ways intentionally to get a decision, to get a response. And the effect of this and these practices actually wasn't revival at all. It was an apparent revival, but what occurred was, again, nominalism and false conversion. Nominalism and false conversion. So it's so interesting, like if you read evangelism books, In one sense, evangelism took off during this period because all of these new practices were being innovated. There was lots of literature being spoken about evangelism. Evangelism this, evangelism that. But the results were not good. There there entered in a lot of new practices from men like like Francis Asbury, who's kind of a, a figurehead of the Methodist circuit writer preachers who went from town to town around the nation, they, they, in their own words, relentlessly proclaimed the gospel, and they adopted new practices from guys like George Whitfield in the first great awakening. I read one account, one, one particular circuit writer, he wouldn't leave a town until he had a, a particular amount of decisions in that town of conversion or conversions until he would go to the next town. So you see how it's kind of a little bit more, more manufactured. Um, or the practices of Charles Finney, who adopted many pragmatic practices to encourage a conversion of the hearers of his evangelism. And this is what Finney's called, in his own words, new measures, the new measures, you could say, in evangelism. And they're new measures of Finney, Finney's methodology and his, the, the, his evangelistic ministry. A couple of these new measures... Um, were protracted meetings, is what he called protracted meetings, where there was like a, a series of days, sometimes even week, where folks essentially got, would be encouraged to come to the same meeting. I don't know, I guess they, they did sleep, they had to sleep and eat. I don't know how exactly how this worked. But the purpose was he kind of wear them down emotionally and tired after being at these service, services for a protracted, a long amount of time, where the spirit could then work in kind of that vulnerable place um, through the evangelistic message. And in these services, Finney would place what he called an anxious seat or an anxious bench, which was a a seat, bench, or altar at one of these services um, that the anxious 
And by that, he just means kind of those that are, are seeking, those that seem interested in accepting the gospel call, those who are feeling convicted, um, they could come sit on this chair as the service was going on, and then a, a leader, an evangelist, could come up and lead them to accept Christ in that moment. This, I think, the best I can tell, this led to kind of the, the large practice of altar calls that we see in this country. Now, of course, God saved people through this means, through these means. So long as, as the true gospel was being preached, God can save how he likes. But what ended up happening, if we study it in large, um, was that the implementation of these new measures and means in evangelism led to practices that if we, if, if we analyze the history of it, we can see actually led to false conversion, that the practices themselves incentivized false conversion, false professions of faith, and led many people in this country to a nominal, not true belief in God and Christianity that ultimately hurt the cause of evangelism. It ultimately hurt the cause of gospel proclamation. And that's not to say that, that many good things didn't occur during the Second Great Awakening. There was, like, there was really a, a massive emphasis on evangelism and taking the gospel to the lost. There was a massive emphasis on, on global missions that really was unprecedented in the time of, of the church. But there's no doubt that, that evangelism fundamentally changed during this period of church history. As many new methods, new measures were adopted around the, the conservative evangelical churches that still influence the church in America today. So the 19th and, and 20th century, I'm going to just fly through this, although it's probably the, the most important or, or relevant to our period of evangelism. But during this time came with it the rise of more celebrity evangelists and celebrity pastors, um, where evangelism became sort of centralized to one man's ministry, and, and the individuals would then flock to go see this one individual. Although I think we've, we've kind of seen this throughout the history of America, starting with George Whitfield. Um, but D.L. Moody, he's a great example of this. Uh, he's a great evangelist from Chicago. He emphasized uh, particularly the evangelism of American cities. Right? That's where the most people were. It's where things were happening. It's where the, uh, the institutions are. So that's where we need the gospel to go. Um, and he was very effective in this ministry. So he'd go from city to city in this country and, and give evangelism meetings where people were, were saved. Across the pond, although he's not an evangelist, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he was a pastor and, and had a very evangelistic ministry in his pulpit or in his preaching. And he led many people to his church to hear the gospel message to be proclaimed. Many lost people were saved through his ministry. And there was a, a, a massive amount of conversions as a result of his ministry, of these people, right? People flocking to see the one really gifted evangelist. And Spurgeon, in a sense, was kind of the pioneer of, of the modern megachurch movement. And I don't mean that in any negative sense, but just the, the size of his congregation was massive. He, I think he had 5,000 people in his congregation. It was very abnormal for that time. Um, but uh, 
kind of the size and celebrity of his ministry kind of became paradigmatic for evangelicals across the West after his ministry. But the, the giant of evangelism in the 20th century, probably the person you think of, at least I do, when you hear the word evangelism, is Billy Graham. Billy Graham had a, a I was just reading this this week, it is a crazy, I don't know any other word to say it, a wild, crazy ministry. Those are probably bad words. They, they connotate like bad things. He was a holy man. But I just mean like he, he did a lot. He did a lot of stuff. It's estimated that through his crusade and revival ministries, he preached the gospel to more than 200 million people around the world in person. In person. Which, again, is just a mind-blowing number. He preached in more than 185 countries. And by all accounts, preached to... He the, is the individual that preached to the most amount, the most number of humans in history. And that's not even counting his, his television and radio ministries, which reached countless others, or the books he wrote. I read one account that claimed that some two billion people heard the gospel proclaimed through his ministry. Two billion people. And so needless to say, I think he had a massive influence on the history of evangelism. Obviously, one aspect of his evangelism, which we've seen throughout the church's history, like Seth pointed out, uh, he used technology. He was very comfortable using the technology of his day to get the gospel out to more people. And I think we see kind of the continuation of this today with the proliferation of, of gospel messages, gospel proclamation through the internet, through through videos, through YouTube videos. I bet... I, I, I met so many guys at seminary who were saved or kind of got reawoken to reform uh, theology through YouTube, through watching a video of someone like Paul Washer or uh, John Piper. Um, and uh, probably a generation before mine or two generations before mine, I've, there's those who were saved by hearing Billy Graham being preached, whether it's on the radio or um, the television or seeing him in person. God used technology to, to reach the masses. And now, this no doubt, I think, does come with consequences as we analyze it. It's hard to say, to see fully, because we're so close, relatively, to the life of Billy Graham, um, and even more so the rise of the Internet age, to see exactly the consequences of some of these practices. Um, but I think it's good for us to think about. It's just good for us to think about the consequences of these actions uh, and the consequences on evangelism. The one thing that I thought of is what seemed to be happening really during this time, and really I think this goes all the way back to the First Great Awakening with John Wesley and George Whitfield. But evangelism started to become a thing that primarily occurred outside of the local church which makes sense in one way, right? Because we, we, evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel to the lost, right? And the church doesn't contain the lost, right? The lost aren't in the church. But what I mean is that the ministry of evangelism became divorced from the local church. And that the, the culture of local churches sort of just outsourced evangelism to the ministry of these larger evangelists. And I would just say that this, in my estimation, out of, is out of step with the New Testament. Evangelism is a spiritual gift given to certain individuals in the, the church, in the local church. And God gives evangelism to 
exercise their gifts in connection to the church, not, not divorced from the church. It's not a, a parachurch ministry. And I think we're, we're going to get into this in a lot more detail in a couple weeks of the connection between evangelism and the church because I think it's a really important link that's, that's sometimes missing. But for now, I just want to point out that one consequence of the evolution of the evangelism of the 19th and 20th century is that evangelism got outsourced to those gifted individuals, not particularly of a local church, which led to a decrease in personal evangelism. And it led to the rise of the parachurch evangelistic ministries. And we see this if we look at the latter half of the 20th century. Youth movements became huge in, in evangelical churches. So one organization you've probably heard of, Youth for Christ. Youth for Christ emerged after a, a series of these evangelistic youth rallies that were held in the, the 1940s. So by the 1940s, youth rallies were held in cities across the country, every Saturday night, organized. Um, where, where young people, youth, would go to these events on Saturday night to hear the gospel proclaimed. And no doubt, I think many people, um, maybe some in this room, have experienced that. And, and God used that as, as a way to, to save people. Billy Graham even joined uh, YFC as a full-time employee in 1944. There's a lot of other youth um, movements and ministries, parachurch ministries, that formed during this time. One one that I know is here is Young Life would be another ministry like this that formed during this time. Right? The purpose is a, a parachurch organization with the purpose of evangelizing the youth and the, the culture. And during this time, there, there also came the rise of just a massive amount of parachurch ministries that focused on uh, evangelism of a particular group. Again, we see this probably most notably on, on college campuses. So groups such as Campus Crusade for Christ, or I think it's just called Crew now, um, they, they kind of formed and existed. The Navigators, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, they're all formed in the, the 20th century. And through these ministries, the, uh, the gospel was taught, the gospel was proclaimed to a massive amount of young people, of college students in this country. Now, at their best... These parachurch ministries worked alongside local churches to, to aid believers and church members to practice evangelism in a particular context. But at their worst, they sometimes took individuals and away from the local church and made evangelism and discipleship a, a practice sometimes completely separate from the local church. So you can get all your Jesus, all your discipleship in this parachurch ministry. Not all of them operated that, that way. It's kind of a mixed bag based on the organization and the group. So that was just kind of a, a brief history. I don't know what, what Mike called it. Very narrow history of uh, evangelism and church history. Any comments? I do have some practical stuff I could say. Any comments about anything you want to say? I came up through the parish. Yeah. I, I've heard a lot of testimonies similar to that of of, of, of kind of the rise of these ministries, which is one thing Billy Graham 
You're one of the 200 billion that saw him in person then. Anyone, anyone else see him in person? <laughs> I think the Crusades is a pretty good example of what I would say, uh, of what I was saying, the kind of the corruption that occurred when you blend church and state, right? It's what kind of conversion are you having when you put a, a sword to the neck and say, bend the knee to Jesus, right? It's a spiritual submission that we're after as Christians in our evangelism. So you can get someone to say that, but we know that that's going to necessarily lead to false conversions. Yeah. Are you talking about like... Uh, yeah. What's his name? William Carey. Um, I think it's definitely, they're, they're related. I couldn't say specifically how, like, but uh, they're probably getting educated at the same places, reading the same things, talking about the same things. Um, yeah. 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 That, that comment is kind of unrelated, but it, it spurred another thought in my mind of, like, can a thought experiment. Would it even be possible to have another Billy Graham in our current cultural climate? I would be inclined to say no because of the just what you're saying. The, to me, we're much more in a place like the early church where we live in kind of a pagan, like a neo-pagan culture where evangelism is going to be much more... The, the Billy Grahams of the world, broadcasting it popularly won't be effective. It won't work because it's nonsense to the the pagans' ears. When it was easier to do, or possible to do in kind of a Christianized culture, which is just going by our wayside. So I think the early church is a good example of they were very faithful to proclaim the gospel, both personally, publicly, and writing, even facing fierce persecution some of the same stuff we're going to face, probably not as extreme, obviously, but it's, they're, they're a good example, I think, for us to follow. Tristan. It's appealing to itching ear, like, yeah, yeah. There's probably something there. You can write an article on it, send it to us. <laughs> all right, well, that's all the time we've got. Thank you so much for the comments, listening. Next week, we're going to talk about um, evangelism. That's right. Evangelism and uh, the sovereignty of God. All right, you guys are dismissed. <laughs>